Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest and friend and a repeat guest, fan favorite, uh, Patri Friedman of Pronomos Capital. Patri, welcome to the podcast and congrats on the fun. Awesome, thanks. Excited to be back here. So, so Patri, uh, Pronomos Capital is a fund focused on uh, charter cities, startup cities, uh, special economic zones. Uh, wh- why don't you talk about what is sort of the state? You know, we're coming into almost 2020 uh, here, you've been working on it, obviously, since, you know, the mid-2000s with seasteading or even before that. What is sort of the state of, of charter cities or whatever we should call it uh, today? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, there's the old line about uh, what people are doing on nights and weekends uh, in their garages is what eventually turns into an entire industry. And I think we're in a place where um, these ideas of building new cities that have different laws uh, in order to help countries become more prosperous are going from theoretical to actual. Um, you know, I'm working on this stuff for almost 20 years and we've been trying to find kind of product market fit and grow acceptance enough that there were good teams, that there was capital available, uh, that, that countries were interested and we've finally gotten to a place where there are no, uh, no charter cities as, as I would define it, or at least no kind of private non-state run charter cities. I mean, I would probably count Hong Kong, Dubai, Shenzhen. Um, but there hasn't been the, the explosion yet that we hope to see of a lot of countries hosting these, but where countries are just starting to, uh, there, you know, we regularly get inbound from, people associated with governments who want to hear about this, know how it would benefit their country, know how they would even go about it because no one's ever, ever done it before. Um, and so it's, we're kind of at this cusp, I would say, where the ideas have taken root. People who believe in the ideas have capital now, especially thanks to crypto and countries are finally ready. And so there's all these people out there kind of scrambling to put together companies. People have been excited about this for a long time, but there wasn't a clear way that they could move it forward. Yeah, and I'm curious to get your view. You know, Mark Letter had this line in, in a podcast I had with him where he said, uh, the two ways to bootstrap a charter city are either to effectively start a religion or start, start a passionate community of people around their similar ideals or to have some economic value proposition to an existing uh, you know, country or city. And I'm curious, more broadly, how do you think about sort of incrementalism in the space versus, versus you know, sheer disruption in the space? There's always, there's always that tension. Well, I think very much in terms of disruption for the long term, um, you know, the goal is to move the, the kind of the way that law is viewed from being this very like local long-term thing to more being like part of a tech stack in the same way that you would go, you know, you wouldn't write your own operating system. If you were making a new tech company, you'd go get, you know, cloud servers that ran Linux and used Apache and used MySQL. Um, We want to see as countries when they're choosing their legal systems and courts, kind of looking around the world for what works the best, what are the standard practices and, and copying it and kind of building their, their local governance stack using the best in the world as opposed to what they happen to grow up with. 
So long-term, I think that's a really, a really disruptive idea, but it's all about incrementalism in terms of making it happen. And especially again, today, we're kind of on the cusp of these projects becoming uh, a reality. You know, I know of a dozen countries who are looking into this uh, and a bunch of teams of entrepreneurs who are, who are working on putting together projects. And so it has to be incremental. And I think that there's a bunch of, of axes, right? You can think about how much autonomy does the charter city have with respect to the host country. So you can have a program like the Honduras Zeta program where a Zeta needs to follow the Honduran constitution and criminal law, but it can apply to the Honduran government for bringing in commercial law from other countries. And, and Mark Lutter has kind of put this idea of a blank slate in commercial law as being the ideal. But then you have other countries like Ethiopia where their, uh, their le legislation is more like a, a very small amount of property rights, making land easier to subdivide and sublease and transfer. It's much, much smaller. So that's, that's one axis. And then there's the sort of how different is the legal system that's adopted within the, the region? Uh, how different is it from the legal system of the, of the country that, that hosts it? And in, in the future, I think we'd like to see the access of brand new legal systems that have never been tried before. But I think we have a long way to go right now with, with just helping countries around the world to use the best legal technology that exists. What is your sort of request for startups in this space? So let's say, you know, really talented entrepreneurs come to you and say, hey, Patrick, I want to do something in this space. I don't necessarily know what the, what the right path is or, or where to look. Where are you eager to see more people experimenting or more people building? Yeah, this is something, you know, that, that, that we, we're thinking about a lot. We're kind of in a period having just done our first close and we have some companies we want to invest in that we've been working with for most of the year. And we're kind of trying to figure out, okay, once we've done this, this first round of investments that's queued up, what kind of companies do we want to invest in and, and what do we want to tell the world so that uh, teams know, you know how to set themselves up for success. And I think that it's a few elements. So like, like any startup, I think you need to have a really great team uh, and, and great and dedicated full-time to this with this you know, naturally as going in the transition from a hobbyist field of something that people are excited about, but they're not, it's not really clear how to make a business or how to raise funding around it. Uh, transitioning from that to a new sector of sort of venture estate, uh, as Balaji calls it, with startups that are funded and, and building building cities is that, you know, you need to have a team who's, who's fully focused on it. Um, and the team also should have real estate development experience. I think a lot of people who are into this stuff are in are, are tech people and, you know, there's a whole, that's a whole topic in itself. Um, but fundamentally, I think that these prosperity zones are much more like real estate projects ultimately than like tech startups. So it's important to have that experience. I think it's incredibly important to have strong local connections with the country that you're working in. Um, I just think, you know, the, some of the greatest challenges in doing these zones are making sure that they meet the needs of the local population, uh, that they integrate well with the society, that it's being asked for by the people who live there. Uh, it's one of the wonderful things about the Honduran program is that, you know, it wasn't like some, you know, random people from somewhere else in the world asked them to create this program. Instead, it was the leaders of the country who saw it as a way that they could help leapfrog development and, and they created and implemented the program. 
And so having, you know, having your team, you know, not just be, say, a couple of people from Silicon Valley, um, you know, but having local political and business leaders really integrated, I think is incredibly important. How should we think about geography? Are there, are there uh, special regions that are, are places you're excited about or that you warn against? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the easiest one is just to go by continents, but I, I do think it's also important questions of size, for example, just that smaller, more nimble jurisdictions are much more likely to do these kinds of programs. Um, you know, it's just easier to get buy-in in, in a place like the Marshall Islands, you know, or even uh, tiny jurisdictions like Liechtenstein, you know, than it is to get Canada or someone on board. In terms of geography, so in North America, I think that uh, the only real opportunity right now is uh, on Native American reservations. There's some interesting federal precedents in recent years that, for example, you can't enforce intellectual property on these reservations. But I think that outside of that and the rest of the, the U.S. and Canada and Mexico, that it's, it's not very promising. Uh, these are countries that are pretty successful. Uh, in the case of Mexico, I've, I've been interested for a while in whether you could do a free trade zone on the U.S.-Mexican border, but it seems like the current government is going in a very different direction. So uh, that's kind of on hold for now. I think that Latin America is really promising. I think Central and South America, you know, if you look at the difference between how, how countries like, say, Colombia have changed over the decades and how much better they're doing or how well Chile is doing compared to some other countries in the region, it's, it's clear that there's incredible potential and there's countries that are small enough for it to work. Um, I, then, you know, turning to other continents, I think Africa has incredible potential. I think, I think most people studying cities and development today would agree that that's where the most untapped potential is. And there's a number of African countries who are, who are interested. Europe is a place where I found what was to me a little bit of a surprising degree of interest. Uh, I think that, you know, Europe has a history of, of being kind of the competitive government jurisdiction, right? I mean, much of our, our current civilization evolved from a bunch of small competing jurisdictions there. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I, you know, I had thought of it as more of a developed, um, a developed region that wouldn't want change. But we've gotten a number of requests from countries both in the EU, in the European economic area and, and nearby. So that's an active region. And then, uh, then the Middle East and Asia and the South Pacific. So I think Pacific Island nations are a really interesting case. Uh, a lot of them are very forward thinking and entrepreneurial. The Marshall Islands, for example, has created the world's first uh, sovereign authorized cryptocurrency, so the first legal tender cryptocurrency. Um, we, we know that French Polynesia, which has looked into seasteading, has this amazing history of, of people who just built boats and went off and settled new islands whenever they wanted to make a new society. And, and in general, with a threat from climate change, uh, countries in this region are, are, are really interested in new technologies and new solutions. And then the Middle East and Asia are kind of an odd one. I, I think that the, the problem from our perspective is that they are the leaders in building new cities. And that's great, but it means that they tend to do these projects at a very large scale. I mean, whether it's the $500 billion NEOM or, you know, just a normal billion dollar smart city development. And it's not clear if you're an entrepreneur who's interested in, in 
doing a competitive governance startup. Um, it's sort of, it's hard to get in with a billion dollar real estate project. And same thing for us as a small venture capital fund, it's not really clear where we'd fit in. So I think that there are people to, to learn from um, and to, to partner with, um, but it's, it's pretty tough to do something new when, when they're, they're the leaders at it. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, I'm curious how we talk about incremental versus disruptive and, and you always have to think about incumbents. And when you're trying to disrupt, you know, Facebook or Microsoft, it's, it's scary, but it's not as scary as trying to disrupt, you know, United States or China or, or something. So I, I don't, like, why wouldn't, you know, these, these governments just sort of seize the wealth created by these cities after a time or in, increase taxes once the city is successful or, or I, that's one question. Another question is how does sort of the future of geopolitics uh, relate to the birth or the growth of charter cities, for example, you know, where, where we seem to be going down this nationalist, you know, more isolationist path uh, or retreating from globalization a little bit. How does that affect the charter city movement? Is it good for it? Is it, you know, troublesome for it? Yeah. I mean, that, so the question about, uh, about government seizing charter cities is the, the most common question we've gotten for investors. And it's sort of, it's hard to answer briefly. And I think it's going to be probably one of our first research papers is a general guide to that. From the, the startup world, I like to think of it a little bit like the question of how do you prevent competitors from competing with your product in the sense that there's not a single answer, but it has to do with a whole variety of strategies and in creating value and being the best at what you do. And you know, I think it's important to remember that, that um, a charter city is a partnership between um, a developer or uh, NGO or company and a country to make a better place to live and work for, for the populace. And that if the, the company is well integrated into the country and it's clearly benefiting the people, um, that it's, you know, it's not in anybody's interest for the country to suddenly change the laws. I mean, if you've created a region that's prosperous exactly because of what the laws are, how it's run, um, because of rule of law and stability, and adhering to international standards, then if you seize it, you basically destroyed all that value. I think people's mental models for this come from the world of resources. And you know, with resources that are just worth a certain amount, no matter who has them, of course, there's a long history of countries just seizing their resources. But it's really different when you're talking about an economy that's based on good governance. And I think Hong Kong is a fascinating example for this. Um, you know, it's really easy to look at Hong Kong and be disappointed that uh, it's not somehow like a democracy or didn't magically transform China into a democracy. But I mean, I think that there's nowhere else in, in China that has more impact in that direction right now. And if you look at it economically, when Hong Kong was handed back over to, to China by the British, as according to the terms of their 99-year lease, following rule of law, as was expected, China didn't suddenly make Hong Kong be governed way worse. They, the economic freedom and the prosperity stayed. What they did was um, they governed it in terms of political dissent and the rule of the Communist Party and free speech in the way that they govern the rest of China, of, of course. Like, I don't know who, it seems silly to me to expect anything else. And so the economic transformation of Hong Kong continued. And, you know, my base assumption was that it wouldn't have any political effect on China. And so, you know, I know there's people out there who are sad that it didn't, you know, become a, immediately become a British style democracy. But to me, it's like, wow, the fact that China has not been able to crack down 
on these sentiments within Hong Kong the way it has in the mainland. Like Hong Kong is the most fertile ground for democracy in China today. So to me, it's clearly having a, you know, a, a positive impact. On the geopolitics, you know, it's a, a complicated question. I would say we are, we're really moving from a regime of the single power, United States dominance, to one of multiple regional great powers, uh, the U.S., China, Russia, Europe, um, being the major ones. And, you know, the, so it's a, it's a world where before maybe you just had to not piss off the United States or not be contrary to the interests of the United States. And today, I think it's much more going to be that uh, a, a zone in any region of the world needs to be supported by the great power of that region. And I think that, and I think that isolationism, in a, in a sense, kind of helps. I mean, for one thing, it's a market opportunity. The more that countries become isolationist, uh, the more they cut off free trade, cut off free immigration, the more of an opportunity there is to make metropolises, which have open trade and, and more open immigration. Um, you know, what we've found in, in some of our initial discussions, for example, talking to U.S. government officials about, um, about Central American zones, for example, is that they see them really positively as a way of increasing the stability of the region. I mean, you know, if you, if you build a, a charter city that is able to interdict illegal drugs and drug trafficking to the United States more effectively than the current government, um, you know, that's something that, that the United States sees as a good thing. And I think everybody kind of benefits from rule of law and from countries cooperating and adhering to international standards. And better governance just helps you do that better. What's going to be the iPhone moment for, for charter cities? Like what's really going to be the, the milestone that, uh, you know, starts, that sets every, the stage for, you know, for them to take off? I think it'll basically be the first time you get, um, you know, a, a privately funded and operated um, government requested zone that is growing at those sort of Shenzhen, Singapore rates. Um, as soon as you have one of those that's growing and successful and people start to notice it, I think all the other con countries will want one. Um, you know, I'd say that international development, a little bit like venture capital can be very, um, you know, very much of a herd creature where certain methods are popular um, and everything else seems silly until something new works and then everybody rushes to copy that. And, you know, it's part of uh, this, this place of being on the cusp. It's incredibly exciting that these things might become real and kind of all of our attention as a as a venture capital fund is how can we create that iPhone moment you know what are the teams what are the countries what are the strategies so that we can put a set of bets out there in the next year or two and at least one of them will will materialize and I think you know scaling up this movement once we've demonstrated it is going to be easy uh, the hard part and the exciting part and the, the time when it really makes a difference is right now yeah and and uh and is venture the right uh, asset, or like, what are the different sort of finance mechanisms for charter cities, and how do they differ from traditional startups that, that are going to be needed? Yes, I mean it's not clear whether venture is is the right approach. I think that the earlier stage these projects are, the more venture-like it is. Uh, you know, we being a being a, a small fund, um, we did a first close uh, in early December on nine million towards a target of fifteen to twenty million. 
Um, we're investing in these teams when they are working to put together a deal, find tenants, get permission from a government, uh, cost everything out when they're mainly paying for uh, PowerPoint decks and plane tickets and, and, and food and rent uh, before they have the, the huge expenses of, of land and, and construction. And so I think that those very early stage projects sort of pre-seed to seed uh, make sense in a venture-like environment that they're very high risk, high return, need small amounts of capital. But then as these projects mature, I think if you look at a, at a, successful, uh, a successful city 10 years later, that it looks much, much more like real estate, that it's raising money through debt, um, you know, through, through hard asset lending, all those mechanisms from international development banks, that it's being priced sort of based on its, its growth rate and its rents, um, much like uh, a real estate development is. The people sometimes ask me about the, the exit market for these, like, you know, how does a, how does a charter city exit? And, and I think it's, well, real estate is the largest asset class in the world. There's a huge secondary market of, of buyers. Um, and I think these projects just become much simpler and, and easier to value as, as they go along. And I mean, the, the hard thing is making that transition, right? So like who are the next stage capital funders um, who can help get these projects from the, the pre-seed to being proven enough to get real estate financing? And, you know, that's something that, that we're working on and in partnership with other financiers and I think is really critical. Yeah. And um how do you see the sort of charter city movement or competitive governance movement intersecting with sort of other sort of technological platform shifts like you know crypto or, or VR in, in the next decade? Well, I think there's a lot of a lot of connection between the general tech world and the way that with software you can copy from the best and you can remix and you can focus on kind of your value add and not have to build everything from scratch. And I think that cities really need to go in that direction. And that's, that's what people like Sidewalk Labs are, are working on, um, as well as the, the couple of urban tech funds, is, is viewing a city like a product. And I think that's really critical going forward. And so it's not as much the overlap between a particular technology, I mean, sure, you know, IoT and, and crypto um, are gonna play into these new cities, um, new mobility technologies, things like whether it's Uber or Lyft, scooters, you know, they all play in, but I think that the much, much bigger, much, much tighter connection is conceptually the idea that a city should be like an iPhone. It should be designed explicitly, consciously to be an incredible experience for the people who live there. Um, you know, whether it's making it easy for them to get to work, being healthier and having better air quality, providing jobs that they couldn't get before, like just viewing a city as a, as a product, I think, is potentially a, a revelation. And then our side of it, it's, it's different from more general urban tech, is viewing a city as a product and viewing the, the most critical part of the product as being kind of its operating system, which for cities is the governance stack. What are the, what are the building codes, the contract laws? Um, you know, w where are the courts and how quickly can they process cases? Like what international standards and treaties are being are being adhered to. So I think it's that that philosophy of building a product and, and viewing the software stack as important that's most similar. Right. And when there's new, you know, a new technology like crypto, people are 
you know, both looking at the infrastructure and at the app layer. And it's sort of interesting to think about, you know, what's the infrastructure for charters, like what's the future of AWS for charter cities or, or, you know. Yeah. Biology had this incredible, uh, this incredible concept of it that, uh, that really affected me like a decade ago. It was basically, what if you had AWS provisioning for a city? What if you were a business and you're just like, hey, I want to open an office and I don't care where in the world it is, but it needs to be this close to a population who has this level of skills. I want this many square meters of class A office space. It needs to be under a legal regime that, you know, say it's a biotech startup. You know, I want at least the uh, revision 3.12 of the international standard biotech law to be enacted and the average court case processing time has to be less than 37 days. Bam. Okay, here's three options. Let me look at them. Think of some secondary considerations. Okay, uh, click order. And, you know, in three days, I can fly to that place. And there's my office set up and provisioned with all these legal requirements. I think that's part of the vision we're working towards. I'm curious, what's lost by treating uh, things as products, governance as products, um, you know, religion as, as, a, as, a, pro as a product? Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, another way of although maybe this is a red herring, but in James Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, he talked about sort of the dangers of seeing, you know, legibility in a forest or something. I think, you know, over planning, maybe it was just bad technology or bad, bad product thinking, but what's, what's lost when, when things are, are seen as products or solely as, as technologies? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, you know, I absolutely think that, that some things are potentially lost and that I, I do have some concerns in charter cities for that. But, but more generally, I think there's just so much more to be gained. If you look at kind of the user satisfaction, you know, what are the approval ratings of U.S. Congress versus an iPhone or an Android user? It's just completely different worlds. And so, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with those dangers, knowing, you know, how, how much better we can make our, our cities. But I do think that, you know, here, here's one example is, is think about Starbucks versus local coffee shops. So, Starbucks is, is much more efficient. You get the same thing every, every place, and that's really good. But we also have some local shops because people like that local flavor and the local differences. And, you know, knowing that it's, it's coffee being made by, by your community and not by some distant, faceless mega corporation. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things I, I would love to see charter cities get to where there's hundreds of them and there are standard legal codes that we've kind of found by testing are the best for bringing prosperity to the people of a country that are the, the fairest, the most just, um, the most easily enforceable. I think that would provide incredible benefit to the world. But at the same time, I think that it would be a real loss if kind of all government converged. Like I really want to see diversity and I want to see different, uh, different countries continuing to have different laws that are that reflect the different local cultures and the preferences of those people. Like, I don't want every place to be the same, um, but, but there's trade-offs, you know. Uh, Scott Alexander has, you know, amazing post about this, this idea of, of, of universalism and the way that when you kind of create a competitive market where, you know, the things that are best win out, you get this incredible efficiency, but at the same time, you get this lots of diversity and you know that's kind of a trade-off but i'd like to see government move a lot more in the efficiency direction yeah i, I want to let, let's double click on sort of 
uh, or go deeper on this idea of you know, decentralization versus centralization or you know consolidation versus versus more more diversity the um like what's going to determine whether there are you know thousands of of singapores and and dubais and shenzhen's versus sort of you know a a big empire <laughs> or a couple of big empires, you know, what's going to determine whether it's consolidation or, or it's opposite. How do you think about sort of natural laws around centralization or, or decentralization or, or what frameworks to think about it? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, that one important point is to differentiate between the number of, of cities of a certain type that will exist. Like how many, you know, how many financial centers that are easy to get visas for that have very business friendly laws uh, like Singapore, like Dubai, do you need? And I think you don't need a thousand. But then let's differentiate that particular type of city, type of product, from this more general idea that law should be viewed as a part of your tech stack and we should be rezoning land all around the world with better laws and better institutions uh, that that will serve people. And I think that that trend and the sort of the competitive pressure on sovereigns. Um, you know, I've just recently been reading uh, the book, The State in the Third Millennium by Hans Adam II, the reigning prince of, of, of Liechtenstein. And he wrote it a decade ago and basically had this vision that every government should become a private service provider. Um, and I think that, you know, that regardless of whether you're an, an agricultural territory, um, you know, or a wine grow, wine growing region or your port that's focused on trade or, or a, a, a financial center, you know, or a, or a sleepy island that people get away to. I think that all of these places can upgrade their laws and institutions and be run more efficiently. And that, you know, it's easy to get excited about the biggest, flashiest, you know, highest multiple um, kind of scenario of, of building another Hong Kong. But that the idea is much broader than that. I'm curious to go deeper on, on sort of natural laws or decentralization, centralization, for example, like how should we think about whether they're going to be, you know, one major currency that rules them all or, or thousands of currencies or, or, you know, mega corp Starbucks or thousands of, you know, in, in the, in the sort of diversified coffee shops or, or one language that we all speak or thousands of languages, any frameworks for how to think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really depends. Um, you know, we have decent economic frameworks for these kinds of questions, and it really depends on the economies and diseconomies of scale in each business. Um, so economies of scale are like, you know, if you're designing a software program, you spend a certain amount of time designing it, but then every copy of it is free. So the bigger you are, um, the more customers that work of creating it is divided among. Uh, or another example would be pricing power. If, if you're so big that you're buying most of the computer chips, then maybe you can dictate the price to Intel. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of diseconomies of scale where the larger businesses get, the, the worse they work. And kind of the classic one is just internal politics and coordination organization within the business. I mean, it's kind of, kind of universal that as any business grows, it, it turns more from, uh, from innovation to internal politics. I saw that happen in my 10 years at Google and it, you know, it's not a fault of Google. I think Google resisted, um, like some of the other large tech companies, you know, a lot better than companies have in the past, but it's inevitable. And the balance between those really depends on the kind of the fundamental, like cost curves and nature of each specific industry. 
I think currency is a really interesting one. I think you can make a, a strong argument that for store of value, you don't want to have a lot of different currencies that you kind of want, um, you know, a few tries at what's the most stable and the most reliable because when you're storing value or having a, a pricing unit that the whole world is measured against, which is part of what money is, uh, you, want, you want the best, um, you know. But for a medium of exchange, if it's just like, oh, how do I transfer money from me to this other person? It kind of doesn't matter. And with, with digital currencies, as, as you know, my dad pointed out 20 years ago, when you can just convert one into the other at the moment of payment, then it, it kind of doesn't matter what you use. And there, there's probably going to be a lot more because each of them will offer different customization or appeal to a slightly different set of people. And because they're, they're interchangeable, um, you know, there's not kind of a, a force for standardization. So, so that's just one example, but really it depends on the details of every, every industry. Yeah. I want to get, get back to uh, Google, uh, your time at Google later. Um, the, I'm curious, how should we think about uh, identity um, and, and it sort of, you know, national identity, you know, we used to have identity around religion, then we had identity around nation states, and we seem to be fragmenting and atomizing into increasingly smaller identities. It's not just Latino, it's the Latino trans person who plays tennis on Tuesdays, and then increasingly, you know, organizing in smaller and smaller groups, while also, uh, you know, empires are consolidating, and, you know, we like to be a part of something really big, too. So uh, how do you think about, what's the right way to think about uh, how, that, how that plays out, how we think about our, our evolving identity? Yeah, I mean, I, I love how you, you pointed out that it's not a simple case of centralization or decentralization. You know, I, in the kind of the 90s, we were like, oh, look, the internet, it's going to be this incredible force for decentralization. And in terms of the large tech companies, you know, what we've seen is economies of scale in producing software and network effects dominating. So those are clearly huge. Yet at the same time, the ability to form uh, geographically separated tribes to link up with like-minded people all over the place has kind of allowed all of these different subcultures and groups and types of people to flourish and i you know there, there's not there's not kind of simple answers about whether any particular period of time is an age of of consolidation or decentralization there's you know they're both happening uh, in in different ways in different industries and you know i would say that that geopolitically we're we're continuing to see fragmentation. I would view the the movement from a U.S. dominated post World War II world to one where uh, each of the great powers has in significant influence over their region as an example of that kind of deconsolidation and the the increasing number of countries that that Peter Thiel points out, you know, still steadily going up, is is another example um, and the the way in which people are now looking to get different functions of sovereignty, maybe from different providers. So we may soon with cryptocurrencies start getting our money from a different provider than we get, you know, our municipal government. And, and so it's, it's, you know, there, there are these ways in which sovereignty is kind of, kind of fragmenting or deconsolidating, you know, at the same time, we can see certain economy of scale technologies are, are consolidating. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see both. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, like technology, this sort of trend of unbundling and, and rebundling. Um, you know, Balaji, I think, quoting sovereign individual, likes to say that um, sort of you know, industrialization and mass production led to this you know, great era of, you know, 
sort of your General Mills, General Motor, General Electric, great, great consolidation, and then sort of starting with the transistor and the microprocessor, uh, and then but really encryption is uh, what, what leads to sort of, you know, the individual having, uh, you know, as much power as a nation state in terms of uh, defense. And I, I, I think the specific framework is when, when it's cheaper to defend yourself than it is for someone to attack you, then sort of uh, it's hard to have a monopoly on violence. And when, when it's the opposite, then it's easier and then greater consolidation around that. Yeah, definitely. And that's a great way of looking at it. The, uh, I wonder if Reddit is another sort of model here where it's, it's uh, both, you know, people have increasingly fragmented identities around different subreddits they're, they're a part of, but then also, you know, there is some sort of you know, supra identity around being a Redditor um, that people, people identify with. Yeah, I think that Reddit's a really, a really clear example of how both coexist and, and enable each other because it is a central tech platform for communities. And so we can look at it and say, well, it's con consolidated in the sense that, you know, this is the place where we have discussion communities of all different types. You know, we don't have like 27 different types of, of forums, et cetera, anymore. Uh, and at the same time, within, you know, Reddit, this, this giant behemoth, there are a, a lot of different places that have very different cultures, you know, not just different focuses, but very different rules about what kind of behavior is encouraged, what is considered to be like a, a contribution, what kinds of posts are allowed. Um, so I think it kind of exemplifies that combination that, that we're seeing. One of the things we spoke about in our last podcast is sort of increasing polarization, increasing tribalism, and that hasn't gotten any better <laughs> in, the, in the last year. And you even talked about saying, hey, um, maybe you know, it's, it's, you're sort of uh, backing down from some of your libertarian ideals just to focus on even some of the basic liberal ideas of you know, free speech, due process, et cetera. Um, how have you sort of seen the, the rise of polarization or tribalism in terms of, of what, what's, what's led to it? And, and perhaps more importantly, where do we go from here? How do we get out of sort of this increasing tribalism and polarization trap? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that I don't, um, you know, I'll kind of, I guess, be humble and, and say that, um, that I don't really know uh, what's led to it. I just have, have some vague guesses. One of them is is just as you move from a growth phase to a to a neutral or decline phase, which is I think quite arguably the case for America and Europe today. It's very natural to go from you know we're all in this together, growing the pie, to you know we're fighting about our sizes because the of the pie because the pie is shrinking. So I think that's very natural. Um, but then the one that I focus more on is that that the way in which uh, everything being connected to everything else and, and you know, the internet, but not just the internet, but cable and media, it's, it's kind of, it's a challenge for, tri for tribalism that, that we're not used to in the sense that, you know, when you were in an actual tribe, you just saw the behavior of the people in your tribe, or even if you were in an, an agricultural city, you, you mostly only saw people who were like you. And if strangers came through, they would like limit their behaviors and, and their, what they spoke about and their display of their religion to what was acceptable to the locals because they were so outnumbered. And now we live in a world where, you know, who, whoever out there from 8 billion people has done something that most pisses you off. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a click industry that's going to try to find those people and, and show them to you. And so we're kind of each shown so many more potentially offensive things because, uh, because the whole world is, is networked. And, you know, I, I think that, that the competitive governance philosophy is 
is part of the solution that, that we need to understand that the number of truly global challenges that require coordination, things like climate change or, you know, preventing uh, runaway AI from killing us all, that that number is, is really, really small and that most problems are local and that we benefit from viewing problems as local. We benefit from trying to, to structure our societies and to, to permit and encourage differences. And that, you know, the, the fundamental, like the problem is when you look at someone doing something different somewhere else and you say like, that's bad. They shouldn't do it that way. They should do it my way. And of course, you can always find like vague ways like, oh, if they live that way um, on the far side of the world, like here's how it could slightly affect me. Like, oh, okay, they're going to make goods a little bit more cheaply than like uh, the people in my city. And that's going to somehow cost me a fraction of a cent of, of profit rather than kind of looking at, at how different people do things differently and saying, well, I'm glad I don't live there. Um, you know, good for them. Do it their way kind of doesn't matter to me. And I think that 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 perspective is really important and that that deconsolidating um, governance and having new new cities and new societies that are created to serve people is a really powerful way of doing that because if you have some place to go that gives you opportunity you kind of don't need to worry about how things are being run other places for other people you know if your tribe or your group um, you know maybe what you really want is a society with uh, consumption taxes and universal basic income and a bunch of business friendly rules with that combination. You say in this place, like we're going to tax you based on what you spend, what you buy, not based on what you save because economists all agree that that's the best. And in this society, we're going to share those taxes with everyone to make sure that everybody has a certain basic standard of living and that they can take risks and have a safety net. And that's what we're going to do. And if you can actually go and build that city and go and create that society, you don't need to fight with all the people in your 300 million person country like the U.S. to get those ideas accepted. So I think that these like local governments and more governance diversity is a really, really powerful tool to reduce tribal conflict. What's the right way of thinking about individualism versus collectivism? I'll scope the question a little bit. There's sort of two critique, critiques uh, some people have. One is the analytical. Glenn Weil has this critique where he basically says um, our sort of model of economics doesn't take into account increasing returns. For example, if I own a you know property in San Francisco or wherever and, and that property gets more valuable, it's not because I did anything to it. It's because uh, the community around it you know became more valuable and yet I'm the only one who sees the sees the benefit from it. So one is is just sort of this naive epistemology where we're either just one individual person or or we're sort of one big you know, country, but there's not sort of nothing in between for different grad gradations. Um, and then there's the practical critique that Balaji has, which is it's, uh, you know, live and let live is not super inspiring as opposed to, you know, win and help win. Um, so I'm just, what, what do you think is sort of the right way to think about individualism versus collectivism? In I think, I mean, one way that you can think about it is, um, you know, sort of the upside of, of nationalism. Um, in other words, that there's a lot of benefits to identifying as a local group with cohesive interest that works together. I mean, every great company is, is a group of people who are really excited to be building something together, um, you know, that, and, and I think that, that similarly, um, you know, maybe like live and let live is not exciting. Uh, and there's a, you know, and it's easier to hook people with like, hey, look at those horrible things those strange people are doing. But there's an in-between, which is like, we're different and we like it. 
or like we're different and we think we're better and we're trying to prove it to the world where you have a, a, a pride in what's unique about your tribe and your region. Um, you don't want everyone to be like that because then you wouldn't be different and you don't want to be the same as everywhere else because you think that your way is better. And I think that's really healthy. And I think a, a, like a, a flip side of the, uh, the anti-nationalist sentiment right now, the sort of universalist progressivist idea that like, we should dissolve all borders and everything should be the same and no one should separate themselves. You know, it, it takes away the ability to have these like places that are different and are, are proud of and happy with their differences. Yeah. The, I, I want to go deeper on sort of the local versus, versus global. One is, so two questions. One is why did states sort of, or sort of in the U S at least, sort of cede their power or lose power relative to, to the national government? How, how did that happen or, or why did that happen? Uh, and then two, yeah, a, a lot of problems are local and you want to align knowledge with power, but some problems require global cooperation like climate change or nuclear proliferation. And so how do we think about those problems, both like local and you know, versus global coordination? Well, here, you know, here we get to the, the seasteading perspective in terms of why, um, why in the U.S., uh, states lost power to the federal government, or, or in Europe, the the countries kind of ceded power to the EU. I think that there are very strong natural forces of centralization of power, um, and that there are economies of scale in maintaining and taking power, uh, and that without right of exit, like unless a region can break free, there's no check on that central government. I mean, you're basically you're sort of asking them to not take as much power and that's just dumb and it doesn't work. And that in, with the history of the US, the way that these two very separate issues of the human rights issue of ending slavery and the human rights issue of local autonomy got mixed up together. And with the end of the, the possibility for US states to exit, I mean, like what would you expect but the, you know, the massive consolidation of power and irrelevance of the states? I mean. You know, that's easy enough to predict. And we can see in Europe, which did not have that same history. So, you know, they have history in Europe of terrible things that happened when countries tried to take over, um, but not of terrible things happening when, when countries uh, necessarily split apart. And so you have Brexit and you have that other EU countries can, can threaten to leave. And I think that's just a, a critical, critical check on the consolidation of power. And you know, part of the idea of seasteading is that if we can solve this engineering problem we haven't solved yet of how to build cheaply on the ocean, that you could actually physically separate parts of a city or regions of a country and float them someplace else. And so on the ocean, you get the, the ultimate ability to exit. And, you know, I'll note that whether or not, you know, we ever, uh, we ever settle the oceans on Earth in a big way, that space actually has that same characteristic. In fact, it's even easier, you know, if you could like unbolt two parts of a space station and, you know, each had atmosphere, like a single human being could literally like climb outside and push them apart. Like that's how easy it is to physically separate things. And so even though land has this whole fixed relationship that uh, makes exit difficult, most of the universe is kind of built for exit. And so I think that's going to be, that's going to be really important. As far as global challenges, I, I, I feel like if we, if, if Earth as a whole and humanity kind of stopped fighting about all the things that were not global challenges um, and tried to coordinate on the few that were, 
that that they're tractable. Um, it's not necessarily easy, I think, especially uh, when it comes to to existential risks that that can be created locally, like you know nanotech gray goose scenario or bioterror, um, you know, or uh, an an evil artificial intelligence. That it's it's really hard to know how we monitor um, the whole world to make sure this doesn't happen, and you know who watches the watchers, and if countries agree to let international agencies monitor them, you know, how do you make sure that power doesn't get abused? I think, I, I don't think that those are easy questions, but I think the more effective our local, regional, and national governments are, the more they, like, limit themselves to doing what's best for their populace and don't try to fight with distant groups about all kinds of things. I think the more kind of social energy and coordination energy we'll have as a species for solving those those few problems that we really need to globally. Yeah. And you know, there's this, um, I read about this sort of uh, belief system called neocameralism plus patchwork, which basically said that today we have a uh, voice, but not exit um, or exits really hard. And, and instead it proposes uh, or it's proposed to have more of a, the opposite, <laughs> you know, exit, but no voice. Are, are you, do you agree with that view or how do you think about sort of tension between exit and voice? Without exit, there is no voice. I almost feel like like exit is what gives punch to voice. So without exit, you may have voice, but there's no reason that those with power ever have to listen to you. And with exit, um, those with power will give you voice. They'll, they'll want to know what you think, because otherwise you'll just leave. And so I view exit as much more foundational, but not because we should have exit without voice, but because with exit, you get both. And I think you know, there's a, one of the neat things about crypto is the way that it's kind of formalizing voice and trying these different systems for, for voice and how people can coordinate and express themselves and vote. And, and I think that's really important um, because, you know, like threat of exit is not enough. You need to actually have the, the mechanisms to figure out what people want and when they can get it together and when they can better get it separately. Um, but I just think with that, with, with exit and no voice, um, you get voice. And with voice and no exit, you get dystopia. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. But Balaji calls crypto networks sort of uh, something like empirical, you know, poli-sci or, or, you know, empirical or experimental uh, economics. Do you, do you think, we just mentioned sort of experiments and governance. Do you think we're learning anything or going to learn anything from crypto networks that will inform how we think about real world uh, governance? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons that crypto is really exciting to those of us in competitive governance is that uh, it can serve as a laboratory for trying out new ways of coordination with real economic stakes uh, and that those ways can then be brought to the real world. And I, I'm also excited about the idea that, um, you know, it's it's can be hard, I've found, to open people's mind to the idea that uh, maybe they should be trying different systems of rules. I mean, we're so used to how we vote, even though you know, there, there are significant differences between how different countries vote and how they're run. We're kind of each used to what we have and the idea of changing it just seems insane. But with crypto networks, you know, there's a growing number of people who are seeing, you know, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars of value created um, with these new systems of rules and new systems of decision making. And it, it kind of proves to people uh, that there are other ways of, of doing things. If you think of a system like like liquid democracy, the idea that rather than just voting occasionally in an election for one representative, that you can delegate your vote 
on any topic to whoever you think is the most expert on that topic and you can change and withdraw it at any time. Like that's, uh, it's very similar to proof of stake, which is already implemented in most of the major crypto networks. Um, and, you know, it was an idea that was proposed in the real world uh, a long time ago, but it's now finally appearing in the virtual world. And I think the potential for, um, you know, for bricks and mortar governance to copy those methods is, is, is much higher. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I think that there's like, there's good reason for being conservative about changing governance mechanisms um, in, in the world of, of atoms. I think, you know, with, at Pronomos Capital, we're looking to invest initially um, in these prosperity zones that are done greenfield, meaning on empty land. So that, you know, even if you have a, a commercial law system that's really different from the rest of the country, that everybody who goes into this zone is choosing it. They're opting in. And, you know, I think someday we'll get to where uh, these legal stacks are proven enough that it would make sense for a community to vote to adopt a new legal system, but, but we're not there yet. And so I think being conservative about changing the rules, especially on people, is a really good idea. But at the same time, like you need ways, you need those laboratories. You have to be doing R&D of new systems of rules, and you know, it has to be someplace with, with real stakes. And so I think that's what crypto networks serve as. What should the right relationships be between uh, governments and big tech companies or, or big or big corporations in general? What, what's, or what's sort of the, uh, between sort of public uh, institutions or, you know, governments and, and the biggest private institutions? How, how should we think about the, the right relationships or is that the wrong way to think about it? So they all be private. <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's, it's just, it's too, it's too complex and too difficult. I think that, um, you know, there, there are two different structures of organization and, and I'd like to see them converge. I mean, you know, we've already seen changes in the kind of the voting structure of corporations and ways of making more mission-driven corporations really succeeding. Um, and so that's a way in which the business world is becoming more like government. You know, at the same time, uh, countries like, like, like Liechtenstein are, are saying, we want to run our country like a business. Uh, we want to view our citizens as our customers. And so that's a, a convergence the other way. And I think that, you know, I guess what I'd like to see is, is rather than these being two totally separate, like the private and public spheres where, where things are done totally differently, that, uh, that the public sector be another industry that has its own unique characteristics. So, you know, there's, there's unique things about the software industry, about the energy industry, about the real estate industry that affects the proper forms of organization and the way that it develops and the firm size and the nature of it. And I don't think that government should be the same as other industries. Like I think it should be more conservative about trying new things. Uh, it needs to be like safe and make sure that, that rules are, are fair and that people are protected. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't see it as being completely different. Um, you know, like, like Hans Adam, I, I would say, the government is a service provider and it's, you know, it, it needs to provide good lives for its citizens. Um, and that's kind of its job and that there are a lot of business techniques that it could be drawing from to do that. A uh, very fam influential book in, in this space is, uh, is a sovereign individual. And I'm curious what your, uh, you know, main takeaways uh, were from it or where it was inspiring for you. I probably haven't read it in some time. One sort of idea from it that I'm curious to hear you unpack is that, um, 
it describes sort of the uh, the fall of nation states is going to imitate sort of the fall of uh, a relative fall of uh, of the church uh, in, in society, um, and why the how are those similar? How, how should we think about you know how people treated the the church to how they treat the how they treat the nation state and how it's going to fall? I think that's a really interesting example. Yeah, I read uh, I read the Sovereign Individual in the late '90s and those kind of uh, cypherpunk days when the internet was young and and I think it's uh, it's really interesting and and I had a, a chance to have dinner with with uh, with William Reese Mogg uh, before he passed away and uh, I mean I love the example of 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 the church because it's not like well I mean you can look at these different time periods so first was the fragmentation uh, with the Protestant Reformation in, in 1517 and so there you had the the you know at least in the West the Catholic Church going from this, you know, one dominant institution to suddenly there being all of these different churches that had these different local flavors and served people in different ways. Um, and there were there were systematic changes um, in that, like disintermediation, like ways that all of the Protestant churches did things somewhat differently from Catholicism. And then there was also this kind of increased diversity um, and you know less rent extraction. Uh, because of greater competition, and I think that's very much what uh, is happening with with government, and you know whether you look at the number of governments overall, which is steadily increasing. I mean, it's not as striking as going, you know, as the way that if you looked at kind of before and after the Protestant Reformation, how many churches there were and how many people they had. If you look now at how many governments there are and how many citizens they have, uh, it's it's much less striking, but it's still. It's still clearly going in in that um, in that direction, um, and you know. But this is not without its costs. Like like churches are part of the fabric of stability of society, and there's benefits to disintermediation. And there was ways that uh, that the Catholic Church was was extracting from people and and driving a lot of uh, repression and bad behavior. Yet at the same time, there was this great destabilization, and there was uh, you know like any war that happened between like Protestants and Papists, you know, you can view it as like a war that happened because of this, this new diversity. And, you know, as we we're talking about with tribalism, that's one of the, the challenges that we have today is how do we have different governments and different ways of living without having more conflict? Um, you know, and it's not easy. And I just, I think it's important to keep in mind both sides of the coin that uh, large central organizations are, you know, they tend to be extractive yet they also tend to be stabilizing. And I think that we should look at kind of both the, the pros and the cons of disintermediation. So some people, I believe Jordan Peterson, have linked sort of the fall of, of religion with sort of the rise of increased sort of, uh, you know, politics, at replacing religion or, or sort of, you know, progressive fundamentalism. Um, how do you see those as, as linked or, or not linked or that we're sort of natural religious creatures and regardless whether we have formal religious or not, we're going to make something else, uh, you know, we're going to be fundamental about something else. Yeah, I really agree with this, this idea that, uh, that the decrease of traditional religion is part of the, the increase in people's, you know, rabid political and moral and ethical views, things like climate change where, you know, there, there are real issues, but the degree of concern uh, seems sort of disproportionate to the degree of danger. And I, I think of it like um, like the way that autoimmune diseases work, right? We have this evidence that people who are exposed to more germs uh, 
they train their immune systems on what to recognize and what not to recognize. And their, their immune systems are more likely to attack actual pathogens, and they do less attacking of, of the body, whereas immune systems that are never trained on actual pathogens are more likely to just run amok and attack the body. And I think the same thing is true intellectually. If you grew up being told by your parents, here's what's right and wrong, here's the institution that tells us what's right and wrong, that tells us how to find meaning in our life, that tells us what a good life is, um, you know, you may, you may choose to dissent from that, but you have this basic training that lets you discriminate between right and wrong, pick which causes to follow, and you know, kind of know from millennia of thinkers like what the big problems are, what are the big questions of humanity. And you know, I think it's it's reasons of of technology and and sociology that religion has decreased. But an effect of of that decrease is that we, we aren't trained. You know, most children are not taught so strongly what's what's right and wrong. They may be maybe told some about it, but they're not given like a clear full system for what's important and how do we find meaning and what what is our place in the universe and what's good and bad. Yet as humans, we we want that. We want to know how to live. We want to be told how our ancestors live. And without that, um, it's it's only natural that people grow up and start like latching on to different random causes with fervency. Like they have this this hunger for meaning, this, you know, hunger for, for causes, for crusades. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just really unfortunate, I think, you know, that, that we had these, these scientific reasons to kind of doubt some of the factual claims of religion and, you know, so kind of destroyed it. But like the hole that that left, like it was serving a real human need and we have not replaced it. I think a lot of harm is happening. Um, and it's, but yet it's really hard to know I think it's an incredibly, like, it's a lot harder to know how to replace religion than it is to, to build prosperous cities. Um, you know, because part of why religion worked was the, the tradition and the accumulated wisdom. Um, and, and, you know, times have changed and some of that accumulated wisdom applies and, and some of that doesn't. But, you know, how do you reinvent tradition while times are changing around you such that whatever you reinvent, you know, it's just going to become out of date again. I think that's one of the, you know, really hard and important problems that's facing us. And, and, and is that what you'd say sort of Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or uh, quote unquote new atheists missed or, or didn't fully appreciate or, 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 or what is it exactly? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really easy to look at, you know, there's sort of like the explicit nature of religion and the implicit nature. So, you know, explicitly it says, you know, it, that it's a bunch of claims about, about God and about how the universe came about and when it was created and, you know, in how many days and how you should live and what right and wrong is. And that, you know, they attacked it on that superficial level because um, scientifically some of those claims turn out to be wrong. Um, no surprise, you know, they were made up by, by humans who, who didn't have as much knowledge and as great tools to study the universe. But at the same time, there are these, in, these incredibly important Im, implicit functions of religion, these ways in which it serves as, you know, a common moral template for a society, uh, a way for strangers to recognize and, and trust each other, a way to know like, what, what's important in life and, and where you get meaning. And so, you know, they attacked this part of it that was obvious and wrong and, you know, the legible part of it. And I think that what we can say in 2019 looking in the world is that there's an incredibly important part of religion that was illegible and there's, there's a great void. 
there, uh, there's been this sort of dichotomy between uh, mistake theory and conflict theory. And mistake theory it basically states that uh, you know those fundamentalists wherever in the world, if they just knew science or if they just had the same information we did, we'd all get along and come to similar conclusions. Uh, this may be echoed in, in sort of the end of history by, by Fukuyama. And then there's sort of conflict theory, which is, you know, actually, uh, not only can people come to different conclusions, but we're sort of inherently in conflict. And that, and so we should actually, instead of trying to seek the truth, we should somewhat distort the truth because the truth is that life is a zero sum game. And, uh, you know, we're all just trying to compete to get our species, you know, genes the next generation. And you can't really cooperate with that as a, you know, fundamental basis of truth. You know, I, I guess I would view them sort of as as polarities. Um, you know, that there's there's val as as we talked about before, there's values in efficiency and there's values in diversity. Um, and that, you know, doing everything the same way and like hewing to one right truth has its benefits. Like in some cases, like the the laws of the universe, there kind of is one right truth. I think we try to apply it to a lot of other things, like what is the meaning of life or what's right and wrong or how you should live that are not really like the laws of the universe where there isn't one right truth. Um, but even, you know, even like what's the current best answer to some fuzzy question, like, you know, how do you run a profitable uh, coffee franchise? Um, you know, th there is a best answer. And if everybody follows it, you get huge efficiency, but then you lose all your diversity and you're vulnerable. Like if, if one thing changes, suddenly that business model fails and you don't have anything else you know, waiting in the wings. It's, it's just, it's dangerous to do things the same way. And you don't learn as much, like times are always changing. And so you don't want to have a single way of, of doing things or a single truth, because some new technology, you know, the proper way of governing a society in a world of cryptocurrencies is different from the proper way of governing society in, you know, 1789, and in a world of, of horses and, and buggies and, and not even telegraph yet. Like they're different. And at, at the time when technology changes and your ways of coordinating change, you want to have some people who are like messing with new experimental uh, version, whether it's of government or of a, of a coffee business or whatever, based on kind of the, the cutting edge stuff that might or might not pan out so that, that you have like prototypes that are ready. So I think that's related. It, it seems you, you had a tweet uh, a while ago that seems to express sort of this great irony that some of the foundations of the Enlightenment Industrial Revolution or sort of you know, even say sort of woke secularism, you know, looks to be created by Christianity and, and the Catholic Church specifically. Uh, unpack that. Well, there's, there's some really interesting research essentially about uh, the connection between the Catholic prohibition on cousin marriage and the development of large industrial societies. And basically the way that, that agricultural societies worked um, kind of until this, uh, until this Catholic church change was that societies were organized very tribally where there was a, a clan system and you trusted people based on how related you were to them. And even in a large country, there would be many different clan groups and there would usually be like one of them that ran the country. Um, and this, I mean, it, you know, it, it has its advantages, but it, it's not, it doesn't scale well. Um, you know, familial uh, genetic relationship doesn't, doesn't scale well. And what the, the Catholic Church did is partly because they wanted to break people's clan loyalty so that they would be more loyal to the church. This is a bit of a dramatization, but it's, it's kind of what the research says. Um, they, start, they forbid first cousin marriage and then second cousin marriage and kind of over time in more areas, 
then they got up to forbidding like fifth or sixth cousin marriage. And this broke up the clan based group because, you know, those groups were maintained by people marrying people that they were somewhat related to and kind of keeping the, the clan going forward. And with, with ending that, suddenly you had entire societies where, you know, there wasn't, you know, there, there were a few people that you were closely related to, but there wasn't a group of, you know, a thousand people who were your third cousins or less. Um, it was like, you know, your, your, your nuclear family and maybe your first cousins and then kind of everyone. And this is part of what enabled uh, like widespread cooperation, larger governments, uh, more zero sum games at a distance that led to, the industrial revolution and, and the world as we know it today. So, you know, it's not that the Catholic church intended to do it, um, but that they did. Totally. What do you think we can uh, learn from uh, Gerard? It, it, and feel free to skip this question if you're, if you're not deep on him. What, what, what can we learn from Gerard? And, you know, perhaps uh, more importantly, what, what's sort of the antidote for some of the, uh, you know, tendencies he, he recognized around scapegoating and, and you know, blaming people with you know, or criticizing people who have you are closer to you or competing on envy. Yeah, I think that the application of Gerard's ideas today is really interesting. It so it, it gets back to what we were talking about before with tribalism and the way in which when the whole world is connected, uh, in some ways you get more conflict. And kind of the version I gave the non-Gerardian version, which is uh, you get exposed to people who are really different from you, and maybe that offends you. But the Gerardian version is. In an interconnected world, suddenly there's a much larger pool of people around the world who are the same as you, who you can then have, you know, sort of Girardian conflict with. So maybe you're the only person in your, uh, you know, in your town who specializes in in glass making, you know, or you're the person in your country who's pushing UBI. And in a in a in a pre-connected world, like there's no one that you have to have a meta competition with. But now when everybody's connected to everybody else, now you're looking at the, um, you know, the climate change activist across the world or the, the, the UBI advocate and suddenly, you know, feeling, feeling jealous and, and competitive with them. And so it's a, it's a real challenge, uh, like how to be happy in that world where it's, it's, so, it's so hard to like feel that you're doing something unique and not find other people to have conflict with. And, you know, I mean, one solution is just to hyper, hyper specialize. Um, you know, Naval would say like, find something in the world and be the best at it. So that whenever somebody thinks of it, like you're the person for that. And, you know, I think that that's true, but there's also the question of like, does it scale? Can we each have a personal monopoly? Like, I don't know. I think that we need to find other like psychological techniques to get people to um, kind of be proud of who they are and what they do and, and not just fight with other people. So it's kind of outside my area, but I think that um, like having smaller, more distinct geographic and political units will help. Yeah. Is, is, the, is, the, is the way out of tribalism or, or one antidote really just a simple solution of inventing the, a common enemy? It is a great quote of, you know, me against my brother, me and my brother against my cousin, you know, me and my brother and my cousin against you know, some other family. Is it, do we, you know, just have to find aliens or anthropomorphize, you know, some existing problem successfully, some global problem? I, I think that's a really good idea. I, I would say the closest there is to a universal solution to tribalism is, just as you said, is a, is a common enemy. So I think that, you know, we're, we're not going to find, randomly find aliens to unite against, but 
if we if we could look at some of the great problems facing humanity today, you know, the need for clean energy to uh, extend lifespans to bring prosperity to everyone, um, you know, I think that we humans flourish when you know they're united together to improve humanity. So I guess you know I'd almost say that we need more nationalism, but like nationalism for humanity. Uh, and and you know what I mean by that, like part of what's what's sad to me about some of the um, the environmental movement, for example, is the way in which it's it's almost anti-humanity. I mean, it's like it's like saying that the common foe is humanity because humanity is despoiling the environment, as opposed to saying, you know, environment was made to serve man, not man for environment. Uh, and like we all need to work together to find clean energy sources, something that's that's positive and unifying, um, and that views human human civilization and people as good. So I think that that's, that that's really important. If you view people as good and you want to see us, you know, it, I want us to go to the stars, right? Look at Elon Musk wanting us to be a multi-planet civilization. Like you don't have enemies. Like there your enemy is, is, is nature and the laws of physics and the fact that you have only have so many resources and you need to get costs done and has to work economically. But, you know, your goal is to benefit humanity, you know, or someone like Laura Deming working on technologies to extend lifespan your enemy is the parts of nature that don't serve us. And, you know, you're trying to help humanity. And, you know, I, I agree with you. I think that that's the closest there is to a general answer is, uh, you know, uniting. And, but the challenge is that some of these problems are partially human caused. And so you look at climate change, it's just, it's so easy to be like, I want to solve this problem. And the way to do it is by attacking or belittling or criticizing or rioting other humans. And so, you know, it, I think if we focus more of our attention on, you know, the challenges that nature has given humanity, of which there are plenty, then I think we'll all be happier. What, what is it? You mentioned climate change before in terms of, you know, us overinflating the problem or, or acting in potential ways and counterintuitive. What's the right way to sort of scope climate change or, or think about addressing it? Is, is it? is it more of a technocratic, careful, you know, innovation approach? One of the big problems with, with climate change, I mean, look, climate change is very politically loaded. And so people don't think well about it. And one example is that, uh, you know, my dad's an economist and he's gone and reviewed every paper trying to es estimate the net economic impact of climate change to see, for example, is it positive or negative? You know, most people don't realize that there's actually a lot of good things about increased CO2, like plants flourish and we depend on plants and trees and crops. Um, that warming is, you know, not not necessarily a bad thing, and so there are there are costs, but there's also benefits. And many of the papers that are studying this don't even mention the benefits, even though they're substantial. And in the ones that do, it's not even clear that the net effect is negative. Um, you know, I do think that there's legitimate concern about the existential risk that is the sort of the possibility of some kind of runaway climate change. Um, I think it's it's good to worry about that along with other existential risks, which you should like kind of stack rank. Um, but and and then on the on the solution side, I think people are just you know people are obsessed with like returning things to an imagined state of nature, um, you know, ending emissions, erasing things that they think of as like dirty or wrong. And it seems really clear from the research that the most likely ways of like reducing CO2 are things more like 
geoengineering or, or other large scale ways of changing the earth, of changing the climate. And so you get this paradox where these people are saying, hey, this is a big problem, but they're really underneath motivated partly by this desire to keep a, a natural state. And then that makes them like hate kind of all of the most likely solutions. And so, you know, personally, I think that we should put our effort into, into the problems uh, where people are willing to work on the solutions that actually work. Yeah. The, I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier, which is you spent a lot of time at Google. It, it seems that in Silicon Valley, particularly the, uh, you know, sort of simplify, the employees are becoming more left and sort of leadership is becoming either more right or more anti-left. I'm curious if you could uh, unpack what's sort of, what's sort of happening there. And it seems that, you know, not only has the left won the culture war decisively, but sort of the illiberal left a, a little bit. Um, and I, I'm just, how has that, how has that happened? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, I don't think the, the culture, I, I think it's good to zoom out. You know, I think like none of these, these fake wars ever get won. Um, and, you know, the culture war doesn't get won. Uh, you have certain groups who dominate in, in some places at some times. And then, Sometimes very suddenly, like the fall of communism, you find out that the, you know, the, the common knowledge was actually something quite different. And I think that we're in this kind of late stage for, you know, the, for the illiberal left, uh, where it's kind of getting more, it's getting more power, but then it's also overusing that power, becoming more and more strident, alienating more and more moderate people, kind of becoming easier and easier to caricature as it becomes a caricature of itself. And you have more and more people who are just kind of opting out of those discussions. And I think the same is true to some degree of, of mainstream politics, that people are making the correct decision to, uh, to watch things that enlighten and uplift them, uh, to do things with their life that make their life better, you know, rather than to get into kind of the, the bickering, you know, about whether we should be wearing red hats or, or blue hats. Is, is wokeism just sort of egalitarianism in, in another form? Uh, just sort of, instead of class-based, it's sort of, you know, race, gender-based, but really sort of, you know, um, like the, that's what it is, sort of dressed up version of it. And if so, it's sort of ironic that, you know, China becomes more capitalist as the West becomes more sort of you know, socialist or, or communist or egalitarian. I do think there, there's a very close connection between um, between wokeism and I guess I would call it universalism, like these ideas that like we we are all the same, that it's bad for any of us to like say that we're different in any fundamental way, that that everyone has to be the same, that there can't be any walls, that you can't exclude anyone, just kind of this breaking down of of, of barriers. And you know, as you point out, that was part of the idea of uh, of of communism, and it, it is very ironic that the U.S. is sort of becoming more universalist while while china is becoming more more capitalist um you know but I, again i think of these as as polarities like putting up walls and and tearing them down are two like great forces in the universe I, you know i think of it sort of like heat flow and thermodynamics um you know it's natural for heat to flow between places but when everything's equal you cannot do any work like we are patterns of information and and those patterns require flow and you know you literally if, if you have heat equal everywhere you, you you have no life you have no patterns you can't do anything so that's the that's the the downside but of course if if everything is separate and there's no flow from one place into another you also can't have any large complex patterns 
and so you know both of these kind of uh you know they, they go back and forth and, and they need to be in balance like you need both another you know a, a related concept is that of catabolic versus anabolic so those are terms for our muscles where uh, anabolic is when you're building up muscle and catabolic is when your tissue is broken down and if you have all anabolic without catabolic that's basically cancer like if you're only building and, and never like reconstructing but if you have all catabolic that's you know death from starvation that's only tearing things down so you need to, to sometimes be building things up and sometimes be tearing them down and you know you shouldn't pick one or the other and i just wish that people weren't so blind about kind of the costs and benefits of each and like you know there there are ways to recognize like which is needed you know the older a system is the more likely that parts of it need to be torn down like the worse the system is performing compared to like smaller alternative proposed systems the more value there is in 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 tearing it down um you know but instead of uh instead of learning those those ways of thinking you know we tend to just either be like out there tearing things down you know or out there like piling things on to, to go deeper in another polarity is uh, equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome i'm trying to sort of get a better everyone sort of agrees on equality of opportunity but i don't know exactly what that means because every time there's an inequality of outcome the next generation has an inequality of opportunity so are those things actually separated and if so what is the right metric or kpi for uh, equality of opportunity or, or is it really just a dressed up version of equality of outcome and is equality not the thing that we should be thinking about in, in the first place? <laughs> well, to get back to what we we're talking about with the antidote to tribalism, I would say that looking at, you know, there's a lot of good things about equality of opportunity. There's a lot of good things about equality of outcome, but they're, they're both goals that are going to tend to bring us into conflict, like conflict about defining what equality is, about how to get it, about who should take from who to give what to who. And, you know, I would say, like, what about the, the common enemy approach what about like if we think of that the goal is a flourishing human civilization that becomes complex and reaches for the stars and upgrades itself and and lives forever um is a quality of opportunity part of that like absolutely if if there are, there are members of humanity who could make incredible contributions to that flowering civilization but don't get the chance because they're not allocated resources that's that's a waste and we should look to correct that. Um, equality of outcome, I think part of the, you know, if a human civilization is really to flourish, I think it has to be good for most people. I don't think it's possibly good for all people, but it needs to be, to be fair and just and beneficial for the majority of humanity to be a successful human civilization. Now, in terms of specific outcomes, like who does what jobs or like who controls what proportion of the resources or makes what decisions, I think that you have to have inequality of outcome, that systems, you know, don't really work without, um, without different people in charge. And that anytime people are doing uh, high-risk experiments, like by nature, some will succeed and, and some will fail, and, and the people are motivated by that. So I think you have to have some inequality of outcome. But I just wish, you know, there's this, uh, this, this philosophy that Jacob, Jacob Lyles describes as pro-civilization that I think colors my thinking these days, and that, you know, if we look at it from that lens, of, you know, I love humanity. I love what we built. I want us to, to keep building more um, and, and improvements in opportunity and outcome can both serve that. And even in your example, when you used equality of opportunity, I, I, it, it seemed more as shorthand for sufficient, you know, opportunity for all. Or, 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 and 
I wonder if, yeah, how can we take, because people don't literally mean equality of opportunity, but how do we take, but equality seems to be the shorthand for so many things and, and that sort of gets lost in translation because people can always claim inequality. I wonder how you sort of shift the, you know, the shorthand from equality to more prosperity or more sufficiency. Yeah, I mean, you know, different words really, really color our, our thinking. And I think equality is, is something that, you know, gets people thinking symbolically. Um, and if we instead kind of think of, you know, humanity, our greatest resource is our people. And are we using that resource well? Um, you know, are we giving the people who could have the greatest impact on humanity the chance to do that? If we think in that kind of functional shared goal outlook, I think we'll do a lot better than if we're just fighting about like whether everyone got the same thing. You know, it's just like, like as a, as a parent, um, you know, I, I have three children and like you, you want to, you want to give all of your children opportunities, but it, it would not serve anybody to try to give them like the same ones. And it'd be impossible to measure like how much time you spend with each of them because they need different things and they need different things at different times in their lives. And they need different things at different times of the week. And instead you just try to do your best to, to give them what, what they need um, and see that they, they prosper. Yeah. Well, one fear or critique people have of, of the charter city universe is at scale. They worry about sort of a, Galt's Gulch like world where basically meanwhile two things can be true one is uh you know charter cities like you know Hong Kong Dubai etc have and one of the biggest reasons for charter city have because they bring so many people out of poverty especially people that live there but for the people who who can't take care of themselves who who can't work uh you know the concern is do they just die like what happens to sort of the the underclass in this new charter city world where um you know rich people don't have to subsidize them or are forced to I, I think that if we look, you know, around the world at where the greatest prosperity has come from, it's been from new jurisdictions that let people come in. Uh, and so I think that, you know, a world where there's, uh, where there's many new jurisdictions, where there's more diversity in different types of countries is a world where more people have opportunity. Um, and I don't know, it's, again, you know, I, I think that this is a, this is a, a running theme that if you think about it as, as, um, you know, what serves humanity is that you need to have places where, uh, where, where people with, with great potential or people whose local environment is not serving them, like there have to be places where they can go, like America was in the, in the 19th century, where, you know, some years over a million people came here. That's like, that's the greatest way we know of to prevent um, people from suffering is giving them a new place to go that serves them. And so, you know, I very much view these, these prosperity zones as like another tool in creating like opportunities, uh, places that people can go to. Recently, I've seen you write about sort of pro-natalist uh, a policy. Basically, the way to make a change is either via technology or, or by having humans. Uh, and, you know, there's this trend where sort of, you know, the more educated people are, the less they have kids, I guess. You know, some, someone's called that the idiocracy, if, if that continues to play out. How should we think about sort of population balancing and sort of the, uh, our current cultural, um, you know, ethos towards, towards that? Well, I think if we look at government as a, as a business, um, that, that people are, its citizens are kind of its, its customers. You know, its revenue comes from taxes. And so to me, it's just absurd that a, a country should be completely indifferent uh, to its its population growth rate and whether or not people are having kids, you know, or or, or dying out. 
and you know for whatever reason sort of in in uh in the west it's kind of you know maybe again it's this anti-human environmentalist thinking um it's it's become kind of uncool or unpopular to 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 talk about like creating the future of humanity you know which is what what having kids kids is and so you know i think that's nuts and then there are these these much more recent trends um where as societies become more educated which is good and have more equality for for women which is good and concentrate in productive cities which is good they stop having kids you know which is which is bad which is an an existentially bad um and i guess i just find it kind of eternally frustrating that that there are all these kind of groups and subcultures and you know people who went to great schools and have really wonderful sense of social justice um you know but but where they're them and everyone like them is kind of like not having children at anywhere near replacement rate and so you know like literally as a population dying out um and if you're indifferent to those things if like if you don't care about education and if you don't care about gender equality well then you know who cares that the people who have it um are dying out but if you do care about those things and and i do then then we should worry about about the the intermingling of these trends and you know again taking this pro-civilizational view of humanity like if humanity is going to flourish we need to figure out how to be educated and have um strong protection for women and live together in cities and actually reproduce and grow our civilization and and grow to the stars um and you know i don't know that i i'm not saying that that i have the answer to this but it it just seems seems like insane to me that pe- more people aren't like thinking and and talking about this problem and and it, you you just mentioned progress for women. So I, I want to try to steal man the, the social justice for a second, which basically, you know, if I were to do that, I would say, hey, um, you know, you talk, you know, people talk a big game about free speech and due process, but if you look at some of the big changes, I, you know, civil rights, um, it wasn't sort of very calm, reasoned conversation that that won hearts and minds. It was it was activism, and it was you know maybe illiberal thinking, but sort of the ends justified uh, and illiberal actions, the ends justified the, the means. And, and, you know, uh, progress is, moral progress is far from over. We still have you know, systemic racism, you know, lots of other problems. And, and we need uh, activism because reasoned argument is not, is not winning hearts and minds here. What do you say to that? Well, I'm certainly not opposed to activism. I just think that uh, to the degree that you are, that people are being violent um, and, you know, promoting looking at race or gender or class by like shouting about it um, and studying it and focusing on it, that they're part of the problem, not part of the solution. I mean, I, anybody who's, who's done any sales or marketing knows that spreading an idea is not just about, um, it's not just about reason arguments. You know, it's also about emotion. It's also about uh, showing people, about like demonstrating the power of your movement. So, you know, I have nothing against that, but, you know, there's a big difference between showing people a better way of life by forming a community that's that's better integrated in in race or class or uh, something like community-based policing, where um, you know where the the citizens and the and the police are are working together towards their common goals, like actually building something better 
and, and sharing it with the world is fundamentally different from just going around and criticizing other people for not being perfect and kind of tearing them down or promoting like literal violence as we see these days uh, on the streets of America between you know, people of one political tribe and people of another political tribe, like literally fighting each other with, with sticks. Um, you know, I just, I don't think that's, and, and, you know, that's both sides to be clear. It's, it's part of, it's, to me that, that violence is just, you know, humans are, are inherently violent and it can be easy to excuse uh, violence and shaming and criticizing others. It's a lot easier to, to do that than to make your own life better or build something better. Um, and so, you know, people look for excuses to do that. And we, we as a society shouldn't support it. You know, we should say, if you have a better way, build it, show it. The, you know, you, one of your focuses is, is, is redefining institutions. And one thing I'm always curious about when thinking about institutions is when you sort of design for evolutionary constraints and, you know, natural flaws and foibles, uh, you know, baked in, or when do you ask us to overcome them? For example, you know, we used to do public hangings and that's a very natural thing to, to do. And we said, you know what, we're not. I know that's your natural thing to do. We're not going to allow it anymore. And, you know, going back to the sovereign individual, it's the, in many ways, it's the era of the most sovereignty we've ever had. But at the same time, in many ways, it's the era of sort of the least psychological sovereignty we've ever had in terms of like social media doesn't seem to be designed with our evolutionary constraints baked in. And it seems, in fact, it seems the opposite. It takes advantage of those evolutionary constraints uh, to turn us against each other. What, what does that make you think? Yeah, I think it's it, this question of when to overcome our evolutionary instincts versus um when to accept them you know it's it's that's part of the evolution of humanity as a species and i don't think you can necessarily predict it in advance but I, I i like your framing if you understand that those are two options in the game and that over time we're probably going to change more and more of our instincts but that it's very costly and um you know we can't change them all or change them too fast uh then i think we can be you know we can be conscious about uh changing the ones that we are capable of changing that people are ready for and people want. I mean, I feel like some of the greatest triumphs of, of humanity, uh, you know, as, as a, a species and a civilization are, are when we changed um, things that weren't serving us. I, I would say that uh, the gay marriage, for example, is, 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 is a triumph. Uh, to me, it's very pro-civilization that, you know, it doesn't, doesn't really matter whether, whether it's like a man and a woman or a man and a man, because everybody uh, with technology can have children. And, you know, so the family as a social and economic uh, unit and unit for producing offspring, you know, kind of works either way. And, and everyone should have the benefits of that institution, you know, but at the same time, I think some of the greatest horrors, like the hundred million people who died under communism came from trying, trying to force uh, changes in instincts on people who didn't want them or weren't ready for them or based on a flawed model of, of what would be better. So it's, it's a, it's a dangerous game, you know, but one that has to be played. And I think as long as we're doing it consciously by looking at what serves people and what works and trying these out in small experiments, then it'll be all right. What's the right way of thinking about cities, uh, cities versus suburbs. And I guess that's the second one because it's related the future of cities versus future of suburbs. I know you have a beautiful place in the burbs. And what's the right way of thinking about, you know, whether Silicon Valley, uh, you know, gains in, in, in power um, versus sort of, you know, other Silicon Valleys that, that rise up uh, or, or global. Is, is it that both get stronger and, and the global just catches up faster than Silicon Valley rises? Or how should, how should we think about all these things? Well, with cities, 
there seem to be some really, really clear trends for cities, um, for that cities are going to keep growing and become even more important economic centers. And, you know, that's for, for a variety of reasons. One is just the infrastructural efficiency of, of a city, that if you double a city in size, it only takes 1.85 times as much infrastructure <clears throat> because of the increased density and the fact that you're building in three dimensions. So there's an economy of scale in, in cities. And then the, the economic density, that part of how our economy is able to produce more and more, get more and more complex and specialized, uh, is <clears throat> these dense networks of production and that a city kind of enables that. You have all kinds of people with all kinds of different skills. Uh, if you're doing a project, you can bring someone in. And so, you know, it seems clear that, that cities are going to be a big, a big part of the future. Now, there's, there's downsides to this. Um, you know, in a city, the air quality tends to be worth, worse, and people are all crammed up against one another, and, you know, they don't have the, the tranquility of, of nature, and it's kind of more stressful. And, you know, think about the, the rat studies, about what happened when they're all crammed in one place, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of horrifying. So I'd say that this, this is something that we need to figure out and something that, um, that new cities can help with. There's this question of how do we get the benefits of, uh, of dense infrastructure and of economic density while building cities that are uh, healthy, like psychologically and, and physically, emotionally, for people to live in. So, you know, but I, I think that it seems like the, the benefits are much greater than the costs, and that's driving continued, um, continued urban inflow. And so that's not going to change. And, and so it's more likely that we'll find better ways to live together in cities than that, you know, we'll, we'll stop living in cities. Although there is, you know, always been the, the internet case for remote work, um, you know, which says that probably a minority of people like myself will choose to work remotely in order to enjoy the, the benefits of nature and being set apart from the world a little bit. In terms of Silicon Valley, um, you know, I think that Silicon, well, there's the question of Silicon Valley as a region versus as a broad philosophical movement and then in absolute and relative terms. So I would say that Silicon Valley as a region will very clearly continue to grow in absolute terms, but to continue to decline in relative terms uh, as, there, as other tech hubs form around the world and, and compete with it. We've seen, you know, this has been happening for, for 20 years. And it's great because I want to see more tech hubs and more diversity in tech hubs. But then if you, if you consider like Silicon Valley, the philosophy, I mean, look, it's not just about the region. If you're, um, you know, if you're in, in, uh, in London's tech areas, um, you know, or you live in, in Bangalore uh, or in Tokyo, you know, you can watch the show Silicon Valley and, and laugh and, you know, get the references and get the culture because you have startup world near you. So I think, you know, Silicon Valley, it's, it's one of the, the few kind of generative cultures that we have today for humanity. It's one of the few uh, groups of people who is willing to look at the world and say, this could be better. And my re I'm not going to like try to make it better by just yelling at people. I'm going to build a better world. And that's, that's one of the most important uh, powers of humanity. One of the things that our civilization needs the most. And that's only going to become more true as we get better and better at manipulating the world with technology. So I think Silicon Valley as a, as a philosophy, as a way of looking at the world, 
um, you know, these ideas of startups and risk and experimentation and trying new things and building a future, not just criticizing, you know, the, uh, the Paul Graham and the Peter Thiel perspective, um, those are just going to keep getting more important. But Silicon Valley, the geo, will become a smaller and smaller part as the rest of the world becomes a bigger part. And uh, I'll end with two uh, related questions on 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 where it all started: uh, governance and 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 prosperity zones. W one is, what are sort of the uh, what's like one of the major arguments or competing philosophies within the charter city or prosperity zone ecosystem? I know it's 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 pretty small, and, and you're one of the pioneers of it, if not the pioneer. But, but what what sort of a difference of opinion people have in the space about philosophy or or about tactics? That's one. And then two is, do you think? Uh, governments or charter cities or prosperity zones should have sort of explicit goals, um, i.e., you know, the goal of our society is to have, you know, X, Y, Z, or is it more vague or, or, or broad or, or how should we think about that? I mean, one of the differences of opinion we, we've seen, you know, with the term uh, charter cities and, and uh, Nobel laureate Paul Remmer who advocated it, uh, and with the, those geographic differences I described with the Middle East and Asia is, is kind of the scale. Um, you know, the people who, who want to build huge mega cities uh, or the people like, like myself who say, well, you know, I'd love to build a mega city, you know, over the course of 60 years. Let's try some small zones, see how they develop. And then if they are making better lives for people, then they'll grow exponentially into those cities. But that things that are built too big at the beginning tend to fail. And, you know, this, this gets at, you're, you're mentioning the book, Seeing Like a State, kind of incorporating that insight and not, uh, not just thinking that you can, you can over-engineer something from the beginning. So uh, that's one difference. Wait, what was the other question? Well, let me rephrase it. Basically, like, should, should governments and cities be sort of like, Imagine oh, like, that's right. like a neutral platform or should it be more like Singapore? I don't, I don't know. Cities that have like yeah, yeah. purposes. In terms of whether a sort of a city should have a vision and a mission statement. I mean, I think that you can have too little guidance or, or too much. Like I, I think that the character of, of different cities is part of what makes them wonderful. And what makes a great civilization is that different cities are oriented around different goals. You know, we have the stereotypical examples in the U S of, New York being oriented around money and LA around fame and media and Silicon Valley around technology. And I think those differences are great. So when, you know, when going and building a product and a, a city is a product, you should have an idea of what will be different about that product, how it will serve people and kind of what's your product vision. So I absolutely think that we should be thinking about it. At the same time, the, the humans in a city are, are so diverse and have so many different needs that you know, I don't think we should be orienting a city around, you know, a particular political philosophy or a particular religion or, or, or a single way of life. Um, you know, a great city is going to have a variety of different people with different goals, all trying to live together. And so the city should have some, you know, specific angle on how it's going to serve them better. But, you know, at the same time, shouldn't try to try to dictate homogeneity. I, uh, I think that's a, that's a great place to close. My guest today has been Patri Friedman. Patri, uh, for people who are fascinated by this conversation and want to learn more about Pronomos, uh, where, where can you point them? Yeah, come to our website, uh, pronomos.vc. That's P-R-O-N-O-M-O-S dot V-C. Or find us on Twitter at Pronomos VC. Uh, perfect. Uh, Patri, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming to the podcast.
Okay, thanks, man. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.